0818-715-815. Hello, good afternoon, and you're very welcome to Lifeline. On Joe at RT.ie, 51551 is our text number. Back to uh, Irish dancing briefly to Elaine Shapovalova, who contacted us. Elaine, good afternoon. Hi, hello. You are, how are you doing? You're a professional embroidery maker, a professional dressmaker. I've been doing it for over 20 years. But you say you've tried to uh, get your dresses um, even seen by CLRG dancers and it's, it's a closed shop. Yes. So I came to Ireland uh, over 20 years ago. Okay. And uh, I started my business probably about 16 years ago. And I was thinking that if I make a dress, I will bring it to someone, one, one of the teachers, and show them, and they will be happy to go ahead with my um, services. Okay. Uh, so it was very difficult to find any teachers. I ran headquarters in Dublin, and I, uh, when I introduced myself that I am a dressmaker, they didn't give even me uh, any number of the teachers. I have to ask my tra- I had to ask my friend. Mm-hmm. to ring and to say that uh, she wants to bring her daughter for Irish dancing and then we got a couple of numbers for teachers. Now, uh, there are a couple of uh, organizations of Irish dancing yes. in Commission and Ankugel. And when I met a lady from Ankugel, she was very nice. I don't, I cannot say how nice she was. She was bringing me to sessions. She was introducing me to everyone. Okay. And this is when I start my business with Ankugel. And I am still uh, staying with them, kind of, because uh, I do have customers from uh, Commission, but they are for school uniforms. And what I was said uh, by um, parents that, Teachers doesn't allow uh, them to bring their daughter for sole address because they want them to be made with the big companies. So what? Okay, what, okay you say on Kogel, there is a number of, uh, it, and they all are independent in uh, independent Irish dancing competitive uh, umbrellas. One of them is on Kogel. One of them is well, the biggest one by far is. Uh, They've, they've, a, they've a surplus of two million at the minute. They're a private company. It's a CLRG. Now they you 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 approach them, and what what exactly did you ask them for? I didn't ask anything. I said I am a dressmaker, professional dressmaker, and embroidery maker. Can you give me some numbers uh, um, of teachers so that they can use my services because mm-hmm. we are in Cork. And most big companies are in Belfast and Dublin. Uh, I'm not sure do they have now uh, any in Dublin yet. You know, most of them, that they are in Belfast. Okay? They mm. didn't even, even me any number at all. And did they say okay. why they wouldn't release? No, they just didn't give. We cannot give it to you. We have our services. That's it. But it was a, a long while ago. It was about 16 years ago. But and, uh, eventually I found some numbers of teachers okay. and I around everyone. Like, but still I didn't have customers uh, over these 16 years for solo dresses. I'm just mentioning solo dresses, not for class costumes. Because I think for school uniforms like class costumes, a group of uh, dancers of, let's say, 20 people, 12 mm-hmm. people, they, if they need to order class costumes, they need to travel to Belfast in order yeah. to make the, uh, again, I'm saying 15 years ago, let's say. Okay, I don't know what will be now. Do they need to travel or maybe they can make measurements over the phone or over the um, internet, but this is what was 16 years ago. 
Okay, now so, we, the, 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 the CLRG are not replying to any media inquiries at the minute, um, so we can't put that to them. How do you? Like, it, there isn't an annual, um, we know they have an annual general meeting and they've six board meetings a year and uh, they take place over a weekend in a hotel because there's a hundred people on the board, believe it or not. Um, but... I just wonder, would that have been, do they say, I presume they never said you, could you tell me, that, that um, oh, by the way, we're having our board meeting in no, Waterford no, no. and yeah, one, just, for, one no. hour, for one hour on Saturday, we allow dressmakers to come in and do a show or whatever to show their wares, but that doesn't happen. No, uh, you can travel to any uh, big competitions and you can see tables of uh, big companies, but there will be no uh, small, like, private dressmakers there at all. There will be just big companies. Okay, but um, why do you say it's a closed shop? Uh, Because once, 16 years ago, one lady, one teacher, she said to me that everything tried, uh, they tried to keep all... uh, Profit in in inside this circle. I am not. I am completely um, separate from from the dancing. Completely. I didn't have daughter. I didn't have okay. time to go. You know. I didn't know anyone at all. I was thinking that I am a dressmaker. I will be able to make a dress. And because I am a professional uh, embroidery maker, I will be. Okay. Uh, this is the only one area where you can use your embroidery skills. You know, Good now point, it's yeah. everything different. Okay. It's, it's computerized machines, which I got, and it's a very expensive machine, uh, you know, just to be in trend, to make uh, the same quality of uh, dresses which are made by big companies. Okay. okay? okay. And, and uh, what, what, is, lady, what, what is your main work at the minute, then, Elaine? What work are you uh, getting? Since that, like, um, uh, an idea when I, tra- uh, when I opened my business, I was thinking just Irish dancing. But then over the years, I realized that I don't have enough customers to keep me going yeah. all year around. So I moved to bridal. Well done. So I do alterations for bridal shops. And it is three quarters of that business is now for bridal only. And just a um, quarter of the business is for Irish dancing. Okay, well done, well done. Okay, Elaine, thanks indeed. That's Elaine uh, Shapovalova. Uh, she's based uh, in Cork. Lots more communication in every uh, platform about endometriosis and the treatment of women. Um, and anyway, you, you know the list at this stage. This is Fiona who sent us a voice message. Good afternoon, Joe. In relation to the topic of endometriosis, I've been suffering with incredibly painful, heavy, irregular periods since I was 14. Several visits to my doctor regarding this and the only answer was to go on a contraceptive. I didn't go to discos, summer camps or any other activity in my teens because my period ruled how I lived my life. In hindsight, I existed and didn't live my teen years. As time went on, I began mentioning it to my friends as they would have recalled school days where I had to go home or change out of my uniform into my PE gear due to being only what I can describe as destroyed by the surprise arrival of my period. I met my now husband in our early 20s. Neither of us had any interest in having children, so I began the conversation about having a hysterectomy with my doctor as I saw what the surgery had done for a woman I worked with at the time. She was so unwell, no energy, struggled with the most menial of tasks. After the surgery, she now had life in her years. She had much more energy. She's incredibly fit, healthy and now relishes her activity holidays throughout the world. 
She fought for seven years and she had her kids and was in her 40s. I, however, was 27 and I was told I was too young and I will change my mind and I will have regrets and I will want children, all of which I knew I will not want or regret. At 32, my husband had a vasectomy. Not once was he questioned or told that he'll regret the decision. In fact, four couples in our close group of friends, each man has had a vasectomy. Only one couple has children. The rest of us have decided children are not for us. I'm now 36. I'm not on a contraceptive. I've sought alternative therapies with holistic therapists to help ease my periods, as medically there is nobody willing to listen to our plight of suffering. I have offered to complete a disclaimer in case a medical professional is afraid of redress. I've pleaded through tears and in pain to please listen to me, to actually hear me, and not just listening, but to respond, which is all that is happening with years. How is this allowed to happen in this day and age? It's nothing short of inhumane. Surely, as responsible adults, we can decide what we want ourselves for our own bodies. Emma McCarthy is on the line. Emma uh, tells us she's 47. Um, she's better now. But um, Emma, you tell us endometriosis ruled and ruined your life for years. Hello, Joe. Uh, thank you very much for uh, for getting in touch. I wouldn't normally talk about this, but last week I had COVID uh, and I was at home all week and I was listening okay. to your show and I was struck by the stories, program after program after program, and on Friday evening I just couldn't settle at all. Mm-hmm. And um, I decided, since you're always so good giving us a voice and giving us time when there are troubles relating to the women of Ireland, I thought I'd write to you. Um, and yeah, I think I said in my email that it ruled my life for a long time. Um, I, As I say, I don't particularly like talking about it, but I think since you've given us the platform, yes, it is a, a nightmare uh, for women who have it and in various ways. And I think um, that I have heard as much as I could of your show, but I was working the last couple of days and I missed some of the stories. But again and again and again, one of the things I think that comes up is the problem relating to diagnosis. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that diagnosis is impossible without invasive surgery is makes the whole thing really, really difficult. Also, the fact that diagnosis takes an average 10 years, um, by which time it's entrenched in many patients, is another problem. And then uh, there is no cure. So the treatment, as you've heard from all the women who've wronged you over the last uh, few days, it's either menopause, false or real, or it's pregnancy, um, or it's maybe hysterectomy, which doesn't always work. And pregnancy is often prevented by the lesions anyway. So there is no cure. And I think doctors don't want to get this wrong. Uh, but they don't seem to, there's no way around it. It's one of the most awkward illnesses knocking around, you know. And then, of course, yeah. doctor's visits are a problem. I always found with me, I'd be pacing the floor for three nights in a row. I'd be dying inside and work. And um, But by the time you get a doctor's appointment, you're probably okay. So the doctor doesn't yeah. see you when you're in the horrors, you know. Um, and um, there was one night when I went to South Dock because I was in such a bad way. And that doctor saw me in the horrors and he said, go straight into the hospital. But I was... I was not thinking straight and I didn't go and I should have gone that night. Um, Yeah, I'm very lucky. I'm better now, but I'm better having had a hysterectomy and having had something like five different surgeries and um, I'm better. uh, I am better. I am. 
but uh, those years, those years are as loads of the girls have said to you over the last few days. Yeah. They're very. It's you're you're on your own. It's very lonely. It's silent, and I mean the pain of it. I suppose it's a little bit like puking. You know, you kind of need to be on your own when you're puking. And my husband is always great. He knew that I kind of had to be on my own when I was dying. And um, you know, you'd be pacing, 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 pacing up and down. That would that would be all you could do. There's no such thing as lying in bed. Really, it's just pacing, 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 and. Um, you're all by yourself and it's the dead of night a lot of the time and you just feel like you're in the wilderness and you're on your own. Um, and when, my doctors did how, their best, but... How long, yeah. Sorry, how long did it take before you were diagnosed with endo? Uh, well, I suppose I don't really know because um, I got my monthly when I was 14, but, hmm. you know, I was born back in the 70s and we didn't think about, we didn't talk about those things, you know. I wouldn't have talked to the girls in school, my friends. My mother would have definitely talked to me okay. had I told her, but it, I didn't think to tell her. Okay. So I would have been suffering, but I wouldn't have really known that it wasn't normal. I thought it was normal to be suffering, but I didn't pay too much attention to it. But I started getting very bad when I was about, maybe about 24, 25, and I did tell my doctor about it at the time. So, but she didn't really, she wasn't really sure. Eventually, she sent me um, to, a, to a gynecologist in 2006. So I would have been maybe 25. So I'd have been, I'd have been bad enough with monthlies from when I was 14, mm. but I don't know whether, I, I, I have no idea when I had it, but I know that I was getting worse, let's say in my early 20s. So that consultant then, he was suspicious straight away. After five minutes, he said, I need to do a laparoscopy and I won't, I won't tell you why until I've done it. And he did it. And then he came in and he told me that I had endometriosis. And it was such a big long word. I had no idea what it meant, you know. Um, but unfortunately, as, as you know, I was saying about the cure, they've all been saying it. There's no cure, so they just manage it with hormones, maybe. So he put me on the pill and he said, take it back to back and this should stop the bleeding and, and then stop the, you know, your monthly so you don't have the pain. And, and that was all well and good. And some girls can tolerate that. But And one of your callers the other day, I heard her saying that she, the same thing happened to her. Instead of not bleeding at all because you're taking the pill continuously, I bled every day for six months and a little bit not a, not a huge amount it was just a constant mm. small amount of bleeding and um, so I had a check up with him after six months and uh, he said um, to keep, that this was working and to keep going because I wasn't having any more pain but um, I said look the bleeding is, is very inconvenient and unpleasant and strange and tiring and exhausting and um, but it was the word but he didn't like and he said no look look I'm the doctor you're the patient to keep taking it so I was naive and uh, at the time and I I wasn't thinking straight and I just obeyed him for another year and a half so I bled solidly for two years okay. and um, I'm tough you know so I didn't really suffer from anemia or I didn't feel like I was suffering from anemia and by the time I went back to him because I was beside myself I couldn't cope anymore um, he was gone and had discharged his patients but I hadn't got a letter to the effect so I went to my GP and he immediately took me off the pill and, but then of course after about six months the pain started coming back so um, and then it just uh, it escalated and I didn't really know what was going on and it was just, you know, but when something creeps up in you, you know, it creeps and it creeps and creeps and it creeps and the pain is a bit worse and a bit worse and a bit worse all the time. It's so gradual that you don't fully realise that it's not normal. So I was thinking it was normal to be up three, four nights in a row pacing the floors. I thought that was normal, period pain. It was ridiculous to think that, but I did. Um, um, but then things got more complicated for me and I didn't really understand that they had, you know, I... 
I eventually went, I was going to my GP, right, all right, about the pain, and he was giving me what he could. Um, but there's only so much they can give you. And I think in our modern world, we have this idea about pain management that it's manageable because we're, you know, 21st century and surely pain can be managed. But pain is actually really complicated. And there's only three families of drugs, I think, that deal with pain, and all of them have terrible side effects. Sharia, you did a big thing on um, OxyContin before, you know, it's, and it was, it was awful listening to those stories of people, you know, yeah. stuck, you know, addicted to it. And those kind of, now my doctor didn't give me that. I got that in the hospital later. But, you know, pain is really difficult to manage. And um, so I was suffering away. And eventually my doctor saw that I was, you know, it was getting ridiculous. So he sent me for scans and he sent me to a specialist. And it turned out I had a growth, which they thought was a fibroid. They didn't think much about it. It looked normal enough. Loads of girls have them. But unfortunately, because I had endometriosis and everybody was so busy trying to maybe fix that, the growth was kind of ignored as a bit of a red herring. I know my GP was worried about it, but my consultant wasn't all that worried. And it was the growth that was was ultimately my big problem. And that growth got out of control. And um, um, my consultant decided to, she she said, look, pregnancy is the only way out of this. So, if you know, you're 40 now. So if you want to get pregnant... Um, I think you should. I think it will fix mm-hmm. the endometriosis. It will sort the problem. And if you want a baby, you know, I'll help you with IVF and all of that. I didn't want the IVF. I didn't like the idea. But I was so ill at the time. I went along with it. Um, of course, I'd have loved a family. My husband would have loved a family. Of course, we would. So I thought we'd go along with it. But um, all the meetings were about that. Um, and I kept reminding her, uh, I'm here because of the pain and the torture I've been going through since I was 25. It was, you know, 15 years of it. Um on and on and um, I think she was sort of so focused on the IVF and I think because I had been very depressed at various times since I was about 25 I did a couple of bad events and they were on my record because I'd gone to the doctor about them yeah. as a result they, I think when that's there they think maybe you're crying for help you know it's sometimes it's, it's very hard to, when somebody comes into you and says I'm in pain and I'm also depressed. It's very hard to, as a as a clinician, or you know, as mm-hmm. a you know, as a teacher, maybe dealing with a child in school, or as a t- as a lecturer dealing with a student in college. How much is this? Are they looking for notice, or how much of it is real? It's very hard to be sure. And we you know? had an so, example last week of one woman who was told, um, who was in a similar situation, but she was told by her medic, "You're wearing your depression on the outside." Yes, I heard that. Yeah, I know. And I felt that over and over and over again. That they, I, I would uh, the IVF stuff made. I was very upset over it, and I cried a lot in, to my shame in those meetings. And it just made me look like I was flaky. It made me. It did look like I was suffering badly with my nerves, which I kind of was because I'd lost so much sleep, and Gosh, I didn't yeah. know at the time that I was severely anemic because they didn't think to test me. So by the time I was tested, my blood my haemoglobin should have been about 14 and it was 8.4 and that was in 2017 I think you know nobody thought to test me for that because they didn't at one point I bled solidly for 74 days and badly I know but you see as I said earlier I'm I'm quite tough you know so I was able to uh, somehow I was managing and but when they did test me and at that point um, my my surgeon my specialist said look Will the IVF, well, we'll see how we can go with that. I still wasn't really happy about it, but she said, you're not in a mental state for it. You're not physically able for it. We're going to try and get you sorted. I need to take out that growth. So she set me up for an operation to take the growth out. But she said, I have to put you into a false menopause as well. So she did that, and I hated that. I hated the idea. But it was actually grand, you know. I had Mm. a headache for two weeks, and that was it, and I was lucky. Um, And she thought that would stop the bleeding, but it didn't. 
And then she did the operation and she couldn't take out the growth, whatever was wrong, I don't know. But she put in the marina coil and I know loads of the girls ringing yeah, you have been yeah, talking about yeah. the coil. And she said it takes a, from a month to six months to work. So I was patiently waiting for it to work. She was waiting too and she was, and I was on the phone to her and I was visiting her and she was saying, give it another month, give it another month. What I didn't know was that after six weeks, your doctor is supposed to check that the coil is still there. And I didn't know that. And it wasn't my GP put it in, so he didn't know to check. And the surgeon must have forgotten. So I didn't know that it was gone. I don't know when it was gone, but I was bleeding so badly at the time. And it wasn't just blood, it was tissue coming out. It was, it was shocking. And um, so I didn't really, really, I didn't really know what was going on. Uh, the coil was gone. So I was sitting at home for five months waiting for the coil to work. My surgeon was waiting as well for it to work and it wasn't working because it wasn't there. And even if it had been there, I don't think it would have worked because what they didn't know was that the tumour had got so out of control that it was it had outgrown its own blood supply and the tissue had become necrotic and was rotting inside in me. And that was what was causing the phenomenal pain that I was in at the time where I was puking and I was up night after night and I was all over the place. And I just was waiting because, you know, I suppose my generation, we were, were quite, I suppose, obedient, you know, when mm-hmm. somebody in a position of authority tells you something, you're quite, I was quite a good girl at school and I'd obey the teachers and so on. So I was just obediently waiting, you know. Um, but eventually one night, uh, things were bad, you know, things were bad enough. But I don't like to complain about it because there's so many other cases that are worse but than But you me, do so. describe your surgeon at one stage as my... My hero, my saint. Oh, yes, he was. He was. Because that was after I went into the hospital one night. Things got so bad. I said to my husband, I think I'm dying. Um, Will you take me to A&E? And he did. And they took me straight away. I didn't understand about triage. Just just Emma, that phrase. Yeah. I think I'm dying. Did you mean it? Or is it just, you know? Oh, no, I did. I thought I was going to die that night. Yeah. Why? Um, Why? Why? um, The bleeding was so bad. I... At that time, at that stage, that was 2018, March 2018, I couldn't, I hadn't left the house in September because the bleeding was so bad. I couldn't go out because I was bleeding through my clothes. And I um, I was lucky. I had a lovely neighbour who knew about special things to help with catching it and so on. I yeah. didn't know about those things. So I couldn't leave the house and I was, I didn't, and at that point, um, it wasn't, it hadn't been discovered how anemic I was. I didn't really know. My sister said I had a weird look in my face. The colour was bad, but other than that. So... Uh, but so I was bleeding away a lot, and it was ju- wasn't just blood; it was tissue. And I would I was in pain all the time. I might have maybe three or four days off a month where I wasn't pacing the floors. I had been signed off work at this stage. Um, actually, I'd been officially signed off work. Um, it was originally to do with a car accident I'd been in, uh, but then after the car accident, uh, the doctor, this occupational therapist, mm-hmm. our occupational doctor, th- saw that I wasn't able to go back to work because of the other thing. So I was off work. And, one, and the pain was, was very bad and so on, but I was managing it with whatever tablets I had. My stomach was killed from the tablets, but sure, you know, your grand, you, you know, you, you take whatever comes your way, Joe, you know, you, you actually do, you can manage. Damn, it's unbelievable. You can manage. <laughs> You'd find it in yourself to manage, you know. Uh, so I was okay and I was listening to your show every day and I was listening to, I was sewing and I was knitting and I was okay. But the pain one night took a turn for the worse and it was, it frightened me. Like it was overwhelming mm. me. I actually didn't know my name. I didn't know who I was. I didn't actually know who I was anymore. And I was frightened by it. It was overwhelming me. It was eating me alive. So I actually said to my husband, I feel inside in myself as if I'm dying. Yeah. So he, anyway, he rang A&E and they said, well, you'll have to wait an hour. 
And I said, okay, and we said, okay, and we went in. And uh, when I got there, I didn't have to wait an hour. You see, I had never thought, I thought you had to, you only went to a if you chop your head off with a chainsaw, you know. I didn't know you could go to a if you're in bad pain. I didn't understand that, you know. Or I might have gone months before. Well, I, um, uh, I think... You know what I mean? <laughs> so I went think in you're and, dying and you've, you've explained well, it so brilliantly night, there. I mean, I, I, don't know how I, really, any, I don't know how anyone would think otherwise. Given, it's given, a, what, a, given what was happening in, to your body. Yes, I think I, it was the way it crept up on me so gradually, you know. Um, and when I went in, they just took me in the door straight away. They just saw me and they grabbed me and they hauled me in and they gave me morphine and it didn't work. And, and I remember them asking me my name and my date of birth and I didn't know my name. I couldn't tell the nurse my name. And I said, I pointed at my husband and I said, I know his name, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but I don't know my own. And um, at that point, I could start to pass out. And as I was passing out, I could hear the doctor say, give it to her, give it to her. And then they gave me the morphine and I sat straight up. I had never had morphine before, you know. And I puked all over the place, the poor things. And the doctor caught it in a bucket. Um, but I, it didn't work, you know. And they gave me a second shot of morphine and that didn't work. And then 20 minutes later, they gave me a shot of pethidine and that worked. And I was in a kind of a daze for the night. And then they scanned me the next day and discovered the tumour. The endometriosis was there, but the, there was a tumour and that, 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 that um, fibroid that they had found a year and a half previous, but that that was not as easygoing as they thought. It had grown to 16 centimetres and it had become necrotic. They didn't know that yet though. And they lo- it looked like a malignant sarcoma on the scans. Okay. And they discharged me and sent me to another hospital and my surgeon came to see me and she said, look, I've really bad news for you. This is, your endometriosis is there, yes, but it has been masking this tumour. We thought we were dealing with endometriosis, but this tumour has got out of hand. And it is now, it looks like a malignant sarcoma. And if it is, you're in a lot of trouble because it's a very bad cancer and there aren't very good chemotherapy options. Uh, So we don't know how it's going to pan out. We have to do an MRI scan. And she said, I have to discharge you and I have to refer you to a gynecological oncologist in case Mm -hmm. it's cancer. So that's the hero. Now, she was very good to me and and so on. And she didn't realise what she was dealing with. But it was the new new surgeon that I was referred to. He's the hero I was talking about in my letter. He was so so kind to me. Well, when did that surgery happen? 2018. Okay. And how soon afterwards did you feel it was making a difference? Immediately, the pain was gone the following day, even though I had a six inch long wound down my front, the pain was gone. Now, obviously, I was, I had an epidural and I was on, um, I had an epidural for four days, you know, as for the pain block, you know, so I was thrilled with myself and no bleeding, you know, all of that was gone because they had to do a hysterectomy. There was no way around it, you know. Um, And then I was in the hospital for about a fortnight and then I came home and I had no pain, no bleeding. I was on holidays, Joe. <laughs> I was on holidays, I swear. And the only thing was, I was still, I had, they had to transfuse me, you see, because I was so, when I got into the hospital that time, you know, sometimes I think things can, you can be managing away at home on your own and you don't realise really what's going on in the background. And one of my sisters is a pharmacist and she was suspicious that there was some, a lot of things wrong and she was trying to help me all the time. And my mother and my other sister, they were all trying to help me and my husband, they were all trying to help me. They were all amazing and they were all looking after me in their own different ways. But none of them could see exactly what was going on and none of them realised how badly anemic I was. I think I think they, they felt powerless themselves. There was nothing they could yeah. do for me, you know. We kind of tried everything. And... Um, Anyway, and, and uh, now, when they, but now that you're now that you're well, yeah, because I think the phrase used by one woman was, "These were my 
childbearing years. These were my uh, income making years. These were my house mm-hmm. buying years. These were my travelling years. Yeah. All, all, God love her. Yeah. All I know. taken. It was taken. It affected. Yes. And how do you feel children. about that now looking back, Emma? Well, I suppose, you know, you have to be. I ha- my All I can think of is. First of all, I'm permanently on holidays, right? That's the first thing, because I was in so much pain all the time and the bleeding was, it's beyond inconvenient, it's mm-hmm. curse. And then it's its worrying and it's all those things. So I'm permanently on holidays because having had a hysterectomy, of course, I don't have any monthly anymore. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm an, almost an advocate for it, even though I hated the idea at first. I, it was very upsetting, the idea of this kind of internal amputation. Mm-hmm. I hated it, but there was no way around it. I had no choice. So I am on holidays, but... It did mean that I couldn't have a family and I'm quite good with babies, you know, I'm very fond of them. I like them and I love my sister's children and I, um, you know, and I'm very lucky because I have a fabulous little nephew and I have another one on the way. um, And my little nephew, my sister is so generous with me, you know, she just lets me have him all the time. And, you know, so I feel like I'm his mammy as well as her. (laughs) And uh, so I'm really lucky with that. Uh, But yeah, it's desperate for me. And it's 50,000 times worse for my husband. He put up with this, all the torture, all the suffering. So on the one hand, you've never been better. And brighter in in your outlook. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, uh, but no, it 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 killed. It just it really affected my work. I'm way behind in my job as a result. I'm way, way, way behind. It seriously affected my work. And we were lucky. We we bought a house. We got a house in 2008, just at the end of the crash. So we got an expensive house just before the crash. But we got a house. Um, but I wasn't. I didn't have a full time job at the time. My husband did. So we were lucky. We managed to get okay, a house. So that's okay. good. But it destroyed. It really damaged. Do you know what? Another fellow mightn't have been able to put up with this, but he was unbelievable. He was so patient, so understanding, so kind, so good. Never, never complained, even though, of course, it ruined his social life. It ruined. He would have loved a family. All his brothers have loads of children. I feel terrible. But anyway, sure, look. And my Mm. surgeon, my fabulous surgeon, who I adore, told me, he said, look, you you haven't left your husband down. This is what all my girls come into me and they all say that. And he said, you haven't. And you can't think like that. And he's a listener, you know. He's not just a surgeon, he listens. And And what what advice, finally, Emma, would you give to younger women especially? Well, I suppose... Who are having their monthlies, as you as you described them, um, <laughs> rightly. Uh, but but they say, okay, it's very very bad pain, but that's normal. But it's not normal. It is not normal. This is the problem. And the first surgeon, uh, the first specialist I ever went to, she did say that to me. She said it should not wake you up at night. It should not wake you up at night. That's not normal. I said, ah, stop it now. Come on. That's ridiculous. It's been waking me up at night as long as I can remember. No, no, no. She said, normal periods should not wake you up at night. They just should not. And that re- that floored me. I couldn't credit that. So, do you know what? I suppose I felt that I wasn't being listened to. Mm-hmm. And all the women ringing you have been saying the same thing. And sure, you've done all the pieces on the mother and baby homes and sympathiotomies and all of it. And in a lot of it, just the women's voices weren't listened to, you know. So, now... I know that doctors are doing their best with terrible resources and they're they're overstretched mm. and they're and you can't get into someone's brain. So if a girl comes into you and she's seventeen or eighteen and she's complaining about really bad pains and so on, a lot of, and when the diagnosis for endometriosis is a laparoscopy, what are they gonna do, you know? So I suppose if I was somebody's mammy and they were under eighteen, or if I was eighteen, mm. between eighteen and twenty five and you're suffering like this, 
I'd be kind of inclined to say, look, to the, to the person in question, write it down, write a little diary down of what it has done to you day and night for maybe a fortnight and then go to your doctor and present okay. them with that diary. And that if, would be that's even one of the simple, things I did. A simple barometer, if, if your period yeah. is keeping you awake at night, that is not mm. a normal period. And if you, you know, a lot of people go to bed when they're not feeling well and they take out water yeah. bottles. Bed was not an option for me. There was no bed for me. Even though I was dead on my feet up 20 hours at a time, all you can do, it's like, you see, I was told afterwards that I was in labour um, for about a year. It's labour pains a lot of the time because with me, it was beyond the endometriosis at that stage. My tumour had got so oh, big, okay. it had necrosed and it was being expelled by the womb. So the womb thought it was a dead baby and it was expelling it. So the tumour was halfway out through the cervix by the time I had my hysterectomy. Um, so I had been in, they discovered after the fact that I had been in labour for about fortnight a month for a year. Um, so it was labour pains. And, uh, you know, so you're pacing. If you're pacing, if you're being woken up at night, um, that's not normal. And if the bleeding is such that you can't go out, that is not right. And also, I didn't ask for a blood test when I should have. And if I'd had a blood test maybe six months before, you know, one of my friends in work, she's, you know, one of my best friends in work, she was saying, why aren't they testing you for your, your hemoglobin, you know? But it fell through the net because I was dealing with two or three different doctors, different you know? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so well, it's, good, I, it's good news today. Thankfully, I know I'm very lucky. And I mean, I had more surgery again this April because I got an ovarian cyst and it looked bad and I was unlucky. And my same surgeon took me on and he took it out and I had to lupherectomy. And you sort of feel like <laughs> female anatomy, just it's the gift that keeps on giving, you know? It's yeah. just, yeah. doesn't leave you alone but look it's I was a, unlucky it's a lovely, and, um, it's a lovely way of putting it yeah <laughs> with, with, I was with unlucky some, but with some amount you know, of irony in there there's yeah, some yeah, amount of irony I know, I know okay, but I'm um, so grateful Joe I'm very grateful and you know what yeah. really grateful to you for doing this well, it's not, this I'm, is the best I'm, thing that's keep, ever happened for endometriosis my voice out of this it's the voice of the the women who contact us like yourself and articulate Okay. You're giving us the voice, Joe. Um, Thank um, you very um, much. Stay well. That's Emma McCarthy. Go to Mila Margaret Emma. 51551 text. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. This voice, uh, this note is voiced by Garetti. Dear Joe, I can't believe what I'm hearing from the women in this country who are experiencing the horrors of endometriosis. And it is a horror of long-term proportions. It brings enormous sorrow, tears and anger. I can't believe it because having gone through a menstrual lifetime with endometriosis myself since the early 60s, I thought that treatment and attitudes of the medical profession might have progressed with research and, and moved beyond the same dismissive comments or suggested solutions from the medical professionals such as have a baby and that could sort you out or you're just being dramatic, it's the lot of woman etc, etc. Why are women still grappling with the same struggles of intense, painful menstrual lives which equally affect their physical, emotional, mental and social health? Nothing has changed with regard to the treatment of endometriosis in Ireland for almost 60 years. Medical professionals don't understand because they're not listening. I thought it appropriate when one of your contributors equated hysterectomy with castration Equally interesting was the comments from some women, one a gay woman in a relationship, who were refused hysterectomies on the grounds that they might meet a man in the future who might want to have children. In the case of the gay woman, that she might change her sexual orientation in the future. We women are still not in control of our own bodies. 
My heart breaks and I'm angry to know that there are still young women going through the same hell that I went through back in the 60s. That nothing has changed. That this hell of endometriosis has continued into the 21st century for women. I'd like to see any man tolerating such ongoing and intense physical, emotional, mental and social pain that lasts from the teens on into the prime of one's life and beyond and having a deep and lasting effect on one's life. And this is Sarah Jennings. Hi Joe, my name is Sarah and I'm 38 years old. I have suffered with endometriosis ever since my first period began. I would be hunched up in a ball, lying on the floor, crying, vomiting, unable to stand up and I would miss days of school. I was diagnosed at the age of 25 and since then I've had two laparoscopies here in Ireland. I now need a third one. Everything for me changed in March of 2021 when I got really, really sick. In 2021 alone, I had 15 consultant appointments, 29 trips to my GP, numerous ultrasounds, MRIs, blood tests. I had my gallbladder removed. I was admitted into hospital three times. One of these times was into the cardiac care unit where I was diagnosed with PVCs. I was put on medication for over a year I had never suffered in my heart before, so this was a terrifying experience. I was in and out of A&E so many times, I can't even remember how many. I thought going to the same A&E every time would help them figure out what was wrong with me, but it didn't. They didn't have a clue what was wrong with me. I had new symptoms and these were right shoulder pain, so sore that I could barely lift my arm. Diaphragm pain, back pain, chest pain, and my heart issue. I knew I had to find out myself what was wrong with me because nobody here could join the dots for me. I, like so many of your other callers, went online and reached out to so many other women. I soon figured out that I could possibly have diaphragmatic endo or thoracic endo. If this were the case, I knew there was no surgeon in Ireland that could help me. So I decided to reach out to surgeons abroad, two in London and two in America. I flew to London, met an expert excision surgeon over there, and I had a scan done there. They discovered that my endo was stage four and it was a lot worse than what I had thought before I had left here. They all suspected that my endo was on my diaphragm or possibly in my chest cavity and I would need a multidisciplinary surgical team to work on me. This is not available here, Joe. I need to go abroad for the surgery I need. Joe, I don't think anybody's mentioned it, but my particular insurance company make you jump through hoops to get the surgery you need abroad. I have to fill in forms. I have to go and sit in front of a a consultant and make him fill forms to prove that I need the surgery abroad. I also need a lot of money in my account before I can go. In order to go to the UK, I would need upwards of 20,000. To go to America, I would need at least 50,000 in my account. That's not taking into account flights, accommodation, food, and everything else that would go along with this. Yes, I would be reimbursed after the surgery, but I would need this money upfront to go. This was a major stumbling block for me and I had surgery booked for America, but I had to cancel. The whole experience was was so overwhelming that I just couldn't go ahead with it. 
The insurance issue needs to be sorted, along with the lack of care, adequate care here for us in Ireland. There, is many, there has been many a time I've sat in my car and just cried out of frustration because there is nowhere, nowhere for me to go here. Nobody understands this disease and the amount of times I've had to explain to people in hospitals what it is, it's just mind boggling and it's soul destroying, Joe. Thank you so much for bringing this topic up. I, along with all the other women in this country that suffer with, um, with endometriosis and adenomyosis, appreciate the awareness you are bringing to this horrendous, debilitating disease. Thank you so much. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Joe Duffy! Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. And our voice message number is, by the way, is 087 1843709. This is a voice message just come in. Hi there. Um, I just felt uh, compelled to call into the show today. I'm listening to all the women discussing endometriosis. Um, it's obviously quite harrowing, but it's great to hear that there is awareness being brought to this uh, disease. Um, I've had my own battle with endometriosis for the past few years. Um, I think the point that I really wanted to raise today is the fact that women do not and should have access to a gynecologist on call um, from a week from a young age. Uh, I think part of the part of the issue here is that we've been um, forced to move back and forth through GPs um, when in fact we should have direct access to, to gynecologists. Um, unfortunately, it's too little too late for a lot of women and they only find out about the endometriosis when they need to go through, when they choose to go through the fertility route. Um, and for some women, uh, they're faced with very difficult decisions because of the fact that the endometriosis has not been picked up um, quick enough. I have had my own difficult journey with fertility. Um, I am the mom to a um, 10 month old healthy little boy right now, um, but we have had our difficult journey. So uh, I just think part of this core, the core issue today in Ireland is the fact that we do not have access to gynecologists. Um, and this is, I think, first step in, in trying to solve or trying to find solutions when it comes to treating this, this disease. Um, yeah, difficult to hear all the women that's affected by this, um, but really, really happy to hear that there's finally, finally awareness, um, because once there's awareness, there's information and it can help a lot of women, um, so they won't have to go through the pain that we've all gone through. Thank you. Just and there's more and more and more, but I want to go to Dr. Mary Ryan, who's a consultant physician and endocrinologist. Mary, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. I'm uh, delighted that you're covering this. I think it's very important for for women. I mean, you covered menopause, and that is huge. It opened everyone's eyes, educated, helped with education, and um, that's what we need to do, and, and that's what we're doing with endometriosis as well. It's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to have, because this is not something that happened like menopause. It was around since Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. Women, you know, one from puberty, uh, once women become, get periods, the ideal is that you should be every 28 days, it should be regular, as you risk, you have been hearing all throughout yeah. the week. Some women don't. They, the ideal period is three to four days. Seven days, 10 days is not ideal. Women okay. never knew this and they were never educated about this. And really it was because there wasn't a focus on women's health up until recently. There wasn't any research done on it. So I suppose 
what you know, if the cycle goes on, you yeah. know, seven, ten days, really, if it's a long, painful, heavy cycle, you do need to bring your child to the GP to get that cycle regulated. Because if that's allowed, go on. Yeah. So at puberty, Joe, the FSH hormone pumps from the pituitary gland to the ovaries and pumps estrogen receptors. If that's, that there is too much of a long cycle, there is overexpression with the that hormone. And basically you're getting very, very heavy periods, very painful periods, as, as, as you've pointed out. But as well as that, uh, this, this can cause overexpression of uh, estrogen receptors. And that does lead to either endometriosis or fibroids and inflammation d- down the road. So it's all about getting it on time because... We regularly, I had one, one patient in today with severe endometriosis, seven uh, to ten day cycle since puberty, since 12 years of age. You know, didn't yeah. all, she just was sent home, even she told me she was lying on a tile floor try, in, the, in the bathroom yeah, trying yeah. to give herself relief. Yeah. Knew if she went home she'd just be given a hot water bottle, that's what was done because there was no education about this. And it is until she's in her 30s that she's presented because she wants to conceive. And this, unfortunately, is, is the norm that women put up with this oh until gosh. they're in their 30s because they want to conceive. And then, unfortunately, you're at a stage where she's got severe endometriosis, which means uterine tissue is outside the womb, all around yeah. the intestine, blocking, you know, getting constipation, terrible pain, pain mid-cycle as well. And then she's into either getting laparoscopy where you remove all these adhesions or uh, going on um, a decapetrol, which is a treatment that puts them into temporary menopause, which obviously is all the side effects that we know about menopause. So, you know, it's about educating these women, present in time, get the cycle regulated. Mm -hmm. And also we need a lot more uh, research done on endometriosis because at the moment we believe it's hormonal that it's got to do with the abnormal cycle. We also, there is evidence to show that it could be problems with the immune system or inflammation, but hormones control the immune system. So if there's a problem with the the hormonal cycle and the period being overly long and overexpression of the, the hormones, then that can affect the immune system. But we need a lot more research into it. Uh, there's a whole load of research coming out saying certain diets help, but we need adequate long-term studies to be able to help these patients more. And, and that's what we want. So that's why I'm delighted you're highlighting uh, this because and women really, really suffer. And yeah. until it's highlighted, we won't get the funding to do all the research that's necessary. And also we want to educate women and schools to present with their daughters mm. much, much earlier than has been done. And that's, that is the key. That makes a difference in endometriosis. If you... Yeah, totally. If we can get people young enough, if, you know, if girls yeah. have seven, ten day periods, as, as we're hearing all the time, and not the ideal with three to four days. I mean, the majority of women, the ideal period, and this has never been spoken yeah. about, the ideal period is, is heavy for the first day, but then after the next okay. three days are light. But if they're heavy right throughout for seven to ten days, that's abnormal. That's not okay. correct. Those patients, not only will they get endometriosis down the road, but they also get fibroids in the womb because they have overexpression of estrogen receptors in the womb. They can get cysts in the breast, which are benign cysts, but they're still very uncomfortable. They can. They also can become in very fatigued because if your hormone control centre is pumping out a hormone uh, for seven to ten days, you know, one week every month, those patients actually present down the road to me and to other endocrinologists very tired, very fatigued because they've been bleeding for seven to ten days every month, losing a load of iron as well on top of that. So it's about those patients presenting much earlier 
and, and, and I suppose we're talking about what's a normal period. Mm. Women don't know what a normal period is. Saying three to four days, definitely not seven to ten days. And get treatment in time, present in time, get treated and get that cycle regulated. So this thing of women, you know, putting up with pain, girls having dreadful cramps and fainting and vomiting, all that is just, it's because women's medicine was really not, women were not treated basically. They just put up and shut up and this was never spoken about. The wonderful thing is that we're now speaking about it and women will now get the, the, the treatment that they deserve and will stop all this suffering. So just, you know, bringing it out in the open, girls and mothers knowing what's normal, fathers knowing what's normal, you know, and being able to take their daughters to the doctor so that they can get it settled at a young age so that we're not dealing with it when the damage is done, which is which is what's happening. People are presenting in their late 30s or middle 30s when they want to conceive. And unfortunately, a lot of the damage is done. Tubes are blocked uh, of, of the womb at that stage. And thankfully, we do get people pregnant, but they have to go through a lot. And that's that's not the way we want it. We want to prevent that. We want women to have, you know, we all live only one life. We want yeah, yeah. girls to really enjoy their lives. We want a lot more talk about what's normal, abnormal. These girls are having very painful periods during the leaving cert. There's nothing to let them get an extra hour, which a lot of them need. I, I'm dealing with this. There's nothing to, that the examiner can allow them an extra hour. This all needs to be done. Because if these yeah, girls yeah. are getting desperate, you know, vomiting, they're losing time in a critical exam they've been working for for so long. So there's so much Joe, we need to do. But talking about it, bringing it out in the open, educating society is a huge key part of, of, of getting the, getting this back to, to normal for, for women. But there have it really been, is, and for young girls. Um, there have been some uh, consistency, well, a lot of consistencies. One, it can take up to 10 years to get diagnosed too um, I was told it was uh, irritable bowel syndrome gallbladder problems I was told mm. it was stomach migraine I was told uh, it was uh, was me wearing my depression on my outside rather than okay. um is, well, there, is there a need to educate medics as well? Yes, yeah. And I mean, we're constantly, you know, medics are going through continuous education and I'm certainly involved in that. But all of all of us are, are doing continuous education and we're educating GPs as well. But I suppose we not only need to educate medics, but we need to educate society as well. The one thing I will say, our diagnostics have got way better, Joe. There is MRIs now, which are really good with contrast that will are okay, very good at showing brilliant. up endometriosis. So that's diagnostics have yeah. improved considerably. But I think, you know, we, we, by us uh, focusing more on women's medicine, we're forcing uh, all the, the university schools to really put women's medicine on the curriculum. You know, okay. so very much by us doing this, we're forcing a change mm-hmm. in policy and a change in universities that you have got put much more on your uh, medical curriculum and your nursing curriculum on women's health. And, and that's really why I want this education done, because for too long, we, we you know, we... We just, we, I'm teaching in the, the university here in Limerick, okay. but we need to go beyond that. We need to educate society as well, educate our GPs, we're doing that. Uh, but we need to open up curriculums and really, you know, expand, listen to what the, those patients are ringing in and saying, well, listen, if, if we need to do more education of our medical students, more education of our GPs, so that people will be listened to. And we know, now know the diagnostics are there, the treatments are there. Yes, we want more treatments, but we won't do that until we get this conversation going. And that's what we want. And Mary, the number of people, insofar as we know, the, the percentage of women 
mm. who get endo. Yeah, it's 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 again it, we don't we there, there's a lot. I mean, I'm I'm going now on the amount of patients that I would see. Okay. Uh, you, yeah, I mean, there's quite there's at least the figures will tell us there's about thirty six percent suffer endometriosis. But then wow. you some then would be mild, you okay. know. Um, but but mild is, is too much too. But the, the women that I would see would be very severe. I'd come across them in the fertility clinics, or they might be patients that have thyroid disease as well. But like the majority, you know, the, an awful lot of them suffer desperate symptoms, and and it's awful when you go back to when I have a patient come in, I say, right, when did this start? And she says, my life was fantastic until twelve, and from twelve on, yeah. I had seven to ten day periods, horrific yeah. vomiting during them, pain made cycle. Which of course, when you get a DG around the ovary you will get pain around ovulation as well so not only have they pain at the period but the pain mid-cycle and this was ongoing all of the time and it affected their whole lifestyle their enjoyment of life their, you know, a lot of them would get pain in intercourse because if you've got yeah, adhesions yeah. down around the vagina they're going to get pain in intimacy Well so one, one woman all- last week Mary said the pain for example during orgasm was unbearable yeah, yeah, yeah. We would we would regularly hear that. We would regularly hear that. The the, the back pain would be horrendous as well. Pain going down the yeah, legs, yeah. horrendous because the ovaries are are surrounded and the nerve that surprised the ovaries is on the top of the leg. So that's why women would get that. But yeah, oh no, the, the pain with endometriosis is horrific. And you see, when you're not getting them in time, the treatments are terrible because they're getting recurrent laparoscopies yeah, to to yeah. basically resect them. But that that's causing adhesions, which will cause problems with with bowels and obstruction down the road. So that's why we really have to start uh, telling people to present early and get the treatment early. And the diagnostics have come up, but look, at, I'll do my best with education and yeah. everyone else is going to do the same as well to educate everyone so that women are going to be listened to and treated because that's what we want. We're, we're empowering women to come forward, mm-hmm. but we're also empowering society to listen to women because we're equal, we're 50% of the population. So, um, you know, we, we want women to be yeah. treated. And obviously, if they're healthier, uh, it's, it makes for a healthier society. But also, women do such a good thing by bringing children into society. And if this affects fertility, that's not a good reflection on society either. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very important that we, we look after this and do it in a time fashion as opposed to leaving it um, foster, you know, fester on the way we have done. And Mary, you're saying that that there's been less research into women's health than there should be. I feel so, yes, I feel so. The the funding hasn't been there. I mean, it's come on now in the last few years, but certainly uh, when I, you know, Mm -hmm. when I'm coming through as a medical student, no, there wasn't even a focus too much on on women's medicine. We we learnt about it, but there wasn't that research here that should be. I mean, one of the things I always think, for example, is girls are getting sexualised and boys very young, and they're all going, girls are going on the pill at 15 but we've no long term studies to show how long is it safe to leave those girls on the pill that's never been done and that needs to be done so there's an awful lot like girls and women to put their hand up for contraception all the time they're the ones that take the responsibility but how safe is it to leave them on that long-term medication. What's that going to do to the bodies down the road? Those studies need to be done, and they haven't been done. So I I really believe while there's some studies done, we need more long-term studies to be able to say, you know, when I'm prescribing medication, is this going to be safe for for how many years for long-term? We need that.
you know. But into endometriosis, most definitely the research hasn't been done because we, like, it's only now where we're, yeah. we know that it's coming through that if you could get them at an early stage, we were always just dealing with um, putting people in early menopause, doing the laparoscopies. The, what we really need to do is focus on catching these girls early yeah, and, yeah. and correcting it at an early stage and not allowing that to develop. And that was because girls weren't listened to, women weren't listened to. It, the society wasn't educated uh, on what a normal period was. They, they weren't educated that a seven-day period, ten-day period, absolutely not. That's not normal. But this wasn't spoken about. You and know, it, it, I we had mm. we heard people the period keeping them awake for days. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Or I even that woman that I had the patient in today, she told me that she would regularly wake up at three o'clock in the morning to take Panadol because it would actually wake her up. Yeah, yeah. yeah you and know, if your period so, wakes you up, that's another alarm call. Of course, of course it is. That's not normal at all. Yeah, absolutely. So there's been so much suffering, but the lovely thing is we are now discussing it. More funding will go into the research. Yeah. Women will now present. Girls will present earlier. And, you know, there's a lot of, of very interesting research coming out on diet uh, where, you know, a mac- uh, foods and magnesium and taking magnesium will help. But again, we need more research done on that. Uh, the high fibre diets have been shown to help, you know, limiting saturated fat has also been mm-hmm. shown to help eating more omega-3 fats like salmon and fish oil and flaxseeds helps and magnesium, uh, which foods do help to soothe the womb and, and reduce pain. But again, we need more more research showing us the, the, the you know, the long-term benefits of all that. But obviously, that we've started diet, I'd be telling people to eat anyway. But yeah, it's just nice to know what to yeah. eat. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And are we, well, Mary, stay with us if you can, please. I just need to take one more break. Please, please. Mm-hmm. Talk please. to Joe on 0818 715 815. Joe Duffy. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. We're talking about endometriosis, but we're also now talking, and it's extraordinarily some incredibly powerful points and um, the, 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 the phrase that kept coming up, Mary, over the last 10 days was we were regarded as unreliable witnesses to our own suffering. Well, that is not... That is, uh, if, if uh, people uh, witness their own suffering to you, they are obviously, just judging by your whole attitude, they are immediately and totally and completely believed. But are we behind, Mary, in Ireland... Um, and I don't want to keep t- t- doing in the country, but are we behind in terms of treatment because of, we heard of people paying to go to the UK, Dubai, Romania apparently is big. Are we behind in treatment? Oh, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, we've amazing um, with gynecologists and they're, they're, they've come home from all these places where they've trained. So no, we, we have amazing gynecologists. I suppose access to care is a problem and it's becoming more of a problem because of capacity and we have huge capacity issues now as well. This Christmas I'm dreading it because we have uh, mm-hmm. um, extra people coming into the country but unfortunately there isn't extra capacity being made available so that's a big problem and it, it is a worry but no there, there is um, fantastic gynecologists I would refer them to, to myself and they're really good and they're up to date and keeping, keeping up to date on it so no uh, I, I would say that there is, really, and there they, is uh, I know you can't generalise but sometimes we have a name our, our, our People, you obviously are not, but are sometimes senior people in any walk of life, mm. be they airline pilots or whatever, are they sometimes reluctant to 
to learn more? Or tell, tell me that's not true. Yeah, well, I suppose, I mean, I from patients I would hear, um, you know, we've I have had patients where the certain doctors didn't listen to them with regard to menopause or sort of uh, fob them off. But the majority of the doctors do. And now that we have a huge emphasis on menopause and perimenopause, we're insisting that everyone yeah, gives yeah. women time. I suppose now that the attitude of the women has changed, now that women have become more empowered, now that women have become more equal, look what happened there with the World Cup and the, yeah, the yeah. women's soccer. Brilliant, um, brilliant, you know, yeah. and, and that it was, what was brilliant altogether, Joe, was that they got the, the media coverage because that's what we were lacking. We were lacking women mm. getting the same coverage as men. So now that that's happening, I think women are realising they're self-worth and they're going to demand to be treated and they're going to be demand to be listened to. So I think all of that helps um, in, in how women are going to be looked after. But certainly there may have been that previously where women were fobbed off, but now that women are empowered, there's no woman that I know or would want to know yeah. that's going to be fobbed off. But uh, no, I, I think in, in the gynaecology and in, in endocrinology, you know, the, we, we do listen to, to, to women definitely and I would hate to think that anybody wasn't. But I have heard stories of some not being listened to, particularly with menopause and perimenopause symptoms, but thank God that's a day that's of the past because yeah, we've yeah. done so much education yeah. now, I would go mad if I heard if I heard yeah. that somebody was yeah. being, being not being listened to, yeah. you know. So just a, it's a couple of more minutes, Mary, please. Uh, Catherine, yeah. Catherine Rossiter. Catherine, good afternoon. Are you there, Catherine? Okay, Catherine was was hanging, but I was going to say to Catherine that your story, Mary, was was very typical. Diagnosed at thirty eight, in incredible pain since she was seventeen. Um, at eighteen in the shower in college, had a fleeting thought. You're there, Catherine, but you yeah, you, sorry, you you're all the 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 same the the similar journey, the pain yeah. when you were in college. I don't know whether yeah. you managed to hear Mary there. I did. I've been listening yeah. to Joe for the last hour. I did. I thought she was amazing and very and, insightful. Yeah, yeah, and reassuring and yes. hopeful. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose I contacted Joe to give some hope to to other women and not to be trite to any of the women who've suffered in any way with endometriosis. But I suffered with it from my teenage years. And I only got diagnosed at 37, 38. Yeah. And by the, the grace of God, after three rounds of IVF and surgery to remove adhesions, I managed to have twins. At 39. Fantastic. Fantastic. But I just, I just wanted to give hope. Obviously, that's not open to every woman, but I yeah. just wanted to give hope. And I suppose I'd love to ask um, Dr. Ryan just about precocious puberty because uh, my daughter is eight and she's, she's showing signs of puberty. And this is, a, this is an issue for the next generation. Mm-hmm. You know, when mm-hmm. do we give the talk about the facts of life? Children mm-hmm. are hitting puberty very early yeah. compared mm-hmm. to my generation. So how do we, you know, how do I protect my daughter? Well, I think in that in that instance, take heart straight to the GP because we can stop that and delay it until she's twelve, until she's you know that that I would certainly mm-hmm. we can delay that period until eleven or twelve. So I would take her straight to the GP, um, and he will send her into one of the endocrine clinics, and we can delay that period until okay. then. Yeah. But certainly, facts of life, as we know, uh, will be you know we all tell daughters at eleven, and and they do it very well in the schools now. In fact, it's done in the fifth and sixth class in the schools very well. But I would t- get her straight to GP. Will refer her to the local endocrine clinic, and she will be sorted straight away. So okay. I and, it, and 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 yeah. again to to reiterate that point, Catherine, that Mary made. 
it's it's about empowerment of women. If it's if if it's real, if your evidence is real, you are mm-hmm. a reliable witness in your own experience, and you should be a fight to be heard. Um, more again, Dr. Mary Ryan. Thank thank you so much, uh, consultant physician welcome. and endocrinologist, uh, Catherine. Again, as just a representative at the end there of the so many calls we still have uh, on the screen. Gurumila Market. Today's program was produced by Annette Egan. Uh, Gurumila Market. Back tomorrow. Catherine Thomas is next. 0818 715 815 stays open until 3.15pm or email joe at rte.ie